Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very delighted to have you here today. This podcast, uh, Everyday Sublime, endeavors to explore what I refer to as a full-spectrum spirituality. And by that I mean in exploring a full-spectrum spirituality that will include uh, two primary layers or levels of the self-experience. And the first level is sometimes called the conventional, and that refers to our identity defined by our body, our history, our thoughts, our feelings, our hopes and aspirations, everything um, of, in the, that relates to the world of experience. And the other polarity of being, or the other polarity of self that is uh, addressed in a full-spectrum spirituality, are there levels or realms of being that are beyond, out beyond the, um, the boundary of egoic identity. And, and those get referred to as the transpersonal or postpersonal dimensions of being. Um, and they're found within all the world's mystical religious traditions uh, or wisdom traditions. So today's uh, episode, which is a talk I gave earlier this week, the title of this talk is called The Subjectivity of Conventional and Absolute Reality. And um, as I'll say, this is something that tripped me up for a long time and and even still trips me up um, when I get into the weeds with it. But um, often in spirituality, particularly in Buddhism, there is a teaching known as the Two Truth Doctrine. And the Two Truth Doctrine posits that there's two sides of the reality coin. There's the conventional, which I just mentioned, sort of our everyday experience. And then there's a unitive transpersonal experience or unity consciousness out beyond uh, experience of duality and separation. And what I try to convey in this talk is that both the conventional and absolute, at least this is the way I think about it, and I offer that as a reflection to, for you to consider. You, you may differ with me, but the way I consider this is that the conventional and absolute are two sides or two ends of the spectrum of subjectivity. So what are immediate experiences? We have one level or one side which is the conventional and one side which is the more absolute position. And I guess I'm, I'm sharing this, this talk and this theme because Again, it's something that really confused me for a long time, but once I I put this question of two truths within the context of subjectivity, that that contextualization, that positioning of the the reflection within what subjectivity is, really opened up um, a new way of thinking about all of this and, and reduced many of the argumentation or conflict I had with uh, trying to make sense of the teachings that from an absolute perspective sounded nonsensical to me. So I hope this reflection is clarifying, and if it's not, please, please let me know. Reach out over email at josh at joshsummers.net. I am um, very open and interested in hearing reflections around some of these talks, um, and the conversation that I have or the dialogue I have through through emailing and, and live discussions um, is part of the dialectical of, of my own learning to articulate and express some of these teachings more clearly. So I look forward to any engagement you wish to bring to me.
And before I give you today's talk, I just want to make an announcement that if you're at all able and interested in supporting the show, please consider chipping in a little bit. Um, this is a free podcast, and, and it does cost a bit to maintain. Um, so if you're at all able to support the production of the show, you can do that by either taking a class with me or Terry. We offer four weekly classes in meditation, yin yoga qigong, yin yoga focusing on the subtle body, and yang yoga. Um, we also offer a suite of online courses that are sort of seven to ten hour courses for really teachers or sincere students interested in learning more about the principles and core elements of yin yoga, Chinese medicine, meditation, and yang yoga. And we also run a yin yoga teacher training school. And so if you're interested in either becoming a yin yoga teacher or just practicing and deepening your understanding of the practice, a training can be a really good way to do that. So there's links to all of that in the show notes, and I thank you in advance for any support um, that you're able to provide. And even just sharing an episode that you might find interesting with a friend as a way of supporting, and or if you're not on my newsletter, please consider joining the newsletter. That's just another way for us to be in touch and for me to um, share some of the, the, the more in-depth content that I'm generating. My current newsletter is going through a series of essays that I'm writing, looking at how yin yoga, the practice of yin yoga, staying relatively still and long-held postures on the floor, how that practice um, is a functional way to support the harmonization of qi. Part two of that series just got published today. Um, that will be on my blog, but if you like it in your inbox in a convenient way, just sign up for the newsletter, Letters from the Path, and good things will start flowing your way. Okay, without further ado, here's today's episode entitled The Subjectivity of Conventional and Absolute Reality. Okay, so for tonight's talk, I wanted to continue on with a theme that uh, was brought up towards the end of our session last time, as I, as I said in the yin yoga class last week, I find, I'm, I'm starting to discover that there's a, a certain cycle to uh, or a dialectic with the teaching that I'm, I'm trying to offer and share, which is that you could say I start, start the conversation with some reflections. You practice when we sit, we discuss it. And then in the discussion, so the discussion session after these formal talks, um, Themes come up, um, points for clarification come up, points of maybe confusion or uncertainty come up. And, and then I sort of sit with those, those themes that, that bubble up during the discussion. And I try to think about how, how could I fr frame things differently? How can I emphasize things differently? How might I articulate something another way? So my hope is that in this broad rolling conversation that we have between uh, the input that I offer from time to time and then your direct sort of uh, exploration of that input in your own practice. And it's born out when we practice together and, and throughout the week, that then when we discuss things, um, this kind of deepens our collective understanding and, and sort of expands how we all start to understand what's going on. So as I was saying, just before um, we started tonight, uh, Next week, we have a guest teacher, uh, Linda Madero, and, and, and Linda and I have been involved in a, a really ongoing conversation ourselves around methodologies 
around practice and, and particularly teaching methodology? What is, how, how can a teacher facilitate um, a student's development and understanding of their own experience? And there's kind of two broad camps of teaching methodology that I've come in contact with. And I, I just, these are kind of a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, like sort of over, the, they're divided in a way that it's sort of exaggerated. So the, the, the two camps here is an exaggerated division, but um, it may be helpful as a frame to think about how you relate to teachings and how you make sense of teachings. One camp of teaching, this is the, the camp that I, I practiced with Linda and I trained um, in, in, a, in a system with, uh, with her, um, is that the teacher is primarily trying to help the student understand the nature of their experience. So in, in this camp, the student's experience, what goes on for the students while they meditate is primary. And the teacher really tries to uh, pr promote exploration through gentle questioning of the student's experience so that this starts to fill in and flesh out and come to a deeper or a developed understanding of what's going on in their, in their experience, in their moment-to-moment -moment experience. Um, and so in this experience-based model, there aren't any kind of privileged states or privileged understandings or privileged knowledge or anything higher or lower than anything else. It's, it's a sort of a, a very um, democratic and um, non-hierarchical approach to working with experience. And then in contrast, this experience-based approach, experience approach to teaching, um, there's how I started mostly, which is that the teachers that I had in the beginning for many years focused their teaching on the received teachings of the Buddha or the received teachings of, of various teachers in their lineages that they've practiced with. And in a teaching-based model, as opposed to an experience-based model, in a teaching-based model, often what happens is the instructions are given, say, as a simple example, the Buddha might have said, everything is of the nature to arise, or everything that is of the nature to arise will cease. So essentially uh, articulating the point that everything's impermanent. And, and so from that teaching, the student is then meant to relate to their experience and see their experience and understand their experience vis-a-vis -vis the quality of impermanence. So the, teacher, the student then tries to line up their experience with a particular teaching. Now, both of these approaches, in my view, have their pros and cons, have their, uh, their, their benefits and their um, challenges. Um, in the teaching-based model, where the student is trying to align their experience of practice to a particular teaching, what can often be disregarded is any experience that's coming up that doesn't line up with that teaching or that doesn't fit within the, the sort of the schemata or model of the teaching. Um, so, for example, you know, if the teaching is, again, to watch impermanence, but the student has a very strong, charged memory from something very painful in their life, you know, a, a, a traditional say, Buddhist teacher might simply say, notice the impermanent nature of that feeling. Notice the impermanent nature of the pain. Don't get lost in the story of it. And while that approach may be helpful at times, 
it doesn't necessarily address the psychological and personal meaning and story and and um, kind of really the personal side of the experience that the personal side can get, tend to get get relegated as insignificant. Like someone, a, a, like an Asian teacher might say, well, that's just story or that's just phenomena. I mean, it's nothing that you really need to trouble yourself with. Just notice what's happening. Notice the process of it. So <clears throat> the reason I'm mentioning this now is that I'm going to give you more of a, a teaching-based reflection shortly. But it's not to negate what your actual experience is in the meditation either. And so when Linda comes in, I'm, I'm guessing she will be uh, giving some reflections about how to help explore your actual experience when you're sitting or your actual experience of what goes on in your meditation. Um, in some ways, that's very, it'll be very simpatico, I believe, with our previous first guest uh, teacher, Howie. When Howie came, Howard Axelrod came, he, he used writing or uh, and we practice writing with him as a way of exploring our perception and, and, and sort of uh, opening up how we see things. So when I talk about an experience-based practice, this is where I tend to emphasize what I call yin meditation. Yin meditation essentially emphasizes being receptive to the whole uh, flow or whole uh, unfolding of experiences you have during the time that you're meditating. So whatever goes on, that's allowed within the, the yin practice. And when I give more of a teaching-based, like you draw from so the, the, the tradition of teaching that, I, that we've received um, to kind of lay out some either theory or conceptual framework for what's happening or how to look into our experience, um, this, this kind of practice is what I call yang meditation in a sense. So yin meditation is about being receptive and then receptive to what's happening. And then yang meditation starts to take a little bit more of an active look into noticing particular, maybe uh, it add yang meditation adds something to the experience. Like what can I do with this to either resolve a, a quality of disharmony or what can I do to understand and see this more objectively, more clearly? So that's all preamble in a way to uh, a statement I made towards the end of last session in conversation with, with a student here, um, where I said in Tibetan Buddhism, there's something called the two truth doctrine, the two truth doctrine, which speaks to the relative side of reality and then the more the absolute side of reality. And to put these this in perspective uh, or to give you a sort of a, a brief sense of what each of these truths are pointing to relative truth points to our conventional experience of the world. So our everyday normal uh, operating system where we perceive ourselves as a person separate from a world of other people and things. So there's a, that's the, it con contains the primary sense of dualism between a subject here and a world of objects outside. And um, in the relative scheme of things, um, our content, the, the specific experiences we have hold great meaning for all of us. So the specific 
conditions of our life, because the history, our hopes, the, the environments we're in, our political institutions that we're, we're enmeshed in, all of that is part of the relative truth of experience. The absolute side of truth, the absolute side of, of, of this equation is something that points to a transcendent, unified, and unchanging experience. So there's the relative experience which, where everything is changing, everything's coming and going. And then the absolute speaks to something that's timeless, more eternal, and confusing for many. And it was, and I, I don't want to speak about it because it was extremely confusing to me, mostly, and I've mentioned this elsewhere, but it's helpful to repeat this, I think, a few times. The reason why that side of, rel of absolute truth always made my eyes go crossed was because I thought the people that were making the statement about what absolute reality was, were make, I thought they were making objective truth claims about the ultimate nature of reality, like ultimate objective reality. So something like when you realize absolute truth, you might realize some constant in the universe, like, like the, the, what, the value of gravity or the force of gravity, or you might realize the speed of light. You, you sort of, your mind wakes up to some dimension of reality that's, that's, that's true in all, all, all contexts. And I just, that just scrambled my head whenever I would hear these absolute statements. And I'm like, how is that true? Because I know everything in my experience is changing. There's nothing in my experience that feels constant. So the first thing, before I share a story from the Buddha's time, um, the first thing I want to say is that one way I have found it helpful to, to resolve the, the conflict, the confusion, the tension between these 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 two truths is to conceptualize them as two sides of subjectivity. So right there, when I say the relative and absolute side of the equation are two sides of, of subjectivity, what I mean by that is we're not talking about objective truths that material science would, would confirm. When I talk about subjectivity, we're talking about the deep experience of what it's like to be you, your, your immediate direct experience of what it's like to be you. So when we put things in the, in the subjective bucket, we put the, the, the two truths in, in terms of subjectivity, we can say the relative story of subjectivity is our name, our history, everything that we've like, sort of accumulated in terms of our life so far. That's the relative side. The absolute side of subjectivity is much more about exploring and understanding the nature of consciousness itself. It's coming and going within consciousness. So this, 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 this analogy may or may not hold water for you, but I've used it before too, but I think it's helpful to repeat again. If you imagine yourself going to a movie theater to watch a movie, so I remember, I haven't done this in a while with the pandemic, but I remember as a kid, you know, hot summer days going to the, the air conditioned movie theater. You can go to a movie theater and you pay your ticket and you sit down uh, in, the, in the audience and 
the story of the movie gets projected on the screen. And that, that, that story could be a tragedy. It could be a love story. It could be a comedy. It could be a sci-fi adventure. It could be any number of kinds of stories projected on the screen. And in a way, what the story is and then what we make of the story as a viewer, how we interpret, how we sort of understand, how we analyze it, how we see layers in it and make create meaning out of it, all of that, that process of, of looking into the story, uh, interpreting it, understanding it, exploring it, all of that is on the side of the relative ledger, the side of relative subjectivity. On the absolute side, we instead of sitting in the, the audience looking at the movie, the relative side, we look at the, oh, sorry, at the absolute side, we look at the process of how the movie experience is created. We start to look back at the, the light shining through the, 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 the projector at the back of the, of the, of the auditorium or, the, or the, um, the movie house. And we start to realize that there, it's a it's a constructed process that there's a light of a, from a bulb shining through film, rotating at a, at a rapid rate that projects images synchronized with sound and audio that creates a coherent sense of a picture or story. So, in, our, in terms of our own subjectivity, you could say our our felt experience of sensation, thought, and sound, and, and taste, and image, our ex the content of our experience is analogous to what's on the screen. The, the absolute subjectivity within our experience is the light of consciousness shining onto the screen so we can see the images and, and, and narrative elements of our story. And when I said there's an absolute freedom last week, when there's an absolute well-being, what I meant was that is never to be found in the relative world of experience. There's no sensation, there's no sound, there's no thought, there's no feeling, any of this, any content. There's no content that will bring an absolute sense of peace it's impermanent it's inconstant it's always in flux but relative to the comings and goings of thoughts feelings sensations sounds and images when we're awake there's the subjective light of consciousness that's illuminating our whatever our experience is and the tricky thing is we you know we can't we can never see consciousness. Consciousness can never see itself. Consciousness cannot be an, become an, a, an object. It cannot be objectified. Like, a, like I can hold up the bowl and you can see an object here. You can, that's the object and your awareness is knowing this object. You can't do that with consciousness itself. So one side of meditation life, if you will, one side of meditation life is getting really familiar with the content of your experience. Getting really familiar with just recognize, okay, I'm watching a movie. I'm watching a, an experience play out in front of me of sensation, thought, and sound. As you get more and more familiar with that, 
and you can become more comfortable within the natural play of experience, not controlling experience, not seeking pleasant sights and, and sounds and trying to avoid unpleasant things, but just allowing the natural flow of things to be what it is for the most part. That then starts to allow you to intuit what isn't changing within the flow. You start to intuit the light of your awareness that is before, then, after all things that come and go, all things that arise and cease. <clears throat> so, um, how am I doing? Good. Have uh, just enough time to share this story with you. Um, so, this is a conversation uh, that's that's in the early Buddhist teachings, and it's a conversation between two of his senior monks or senior disciples. So it's two senior uh, students here having a conversation about their practice. And one of them is, his name is Anaruda. Anaruda. And Anaruda has practiced a lot of meditation and he has developed what in the literature is referred to as psychic powers. He's got extra extra human powers. He's got the ability to see into past lives. He's got the ability to see into the 10,000 fold system of the universe. He's got all these powers. And yet he, he self diagnoses that he's not free. He doesn't, he, his heart is still caught by suffering. He still feels agitation in his experience with the world. And he, and he turns to his friend and his friend's name is Sariputta. And he asks Sariputta for advice. What can he do? So um, Anuruddha went to Sariputta. This is directly from the sutta now. Anuruddha went to uh, Sariputta and on arrival exchanged courteous greetings with him. And after these friendly courteous greetings, he sat to one side. And as he was sitting there, he said to Sariputta, quote, Here, by means of the divine eye, so he has awakened his divine eye. By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human eye, I see the 10,000-fold cosmos. And my persistence is aroused and unsluggish. So his energy is really strong and unshaking. My mindfulness is, is established and unmuddled. So he's, not, he's very focused and mindful and clear. And he says, my body is calm and relaxed. My mind is concentrated and gathered into singleness. And yet, is the killer, and yet my mind is not released from the outflowing of, of the, what are referred to as the defilements, the outflowing of greed, hatred, and delusion that I spoke about last night. So he's saying, basically, I've done all this stuff. I'm doing all these things in my practice, but my mind is not released yet from suffering. And before I give you Sariputta's response, um, I was thinking about how, how can we modernize this language, <laughs> put it in a contemporary context. Like, what would a modern Anaruda say? Um, and so I was trying to imagine, I feel like I've had a similar conversation with friends over, over the years. And the, the, the way I might put it would be something like, you know, I've gone on 30 retreats in the last 10 years. And every spring I do a liver cleanse. And every August, I do a three-day juice fast. 
and I do my yoga practice and I stand on my head for a half hour every day. And I have a mala bead that was blessed by a sacred teacher in, in the Himalayas. And I, I practice my mantra every morning for 10 minutes before I start work. I'm doing all these things. And yet, you know, I'm still feeling caught. I'm still feeling trapped. I'm still feeling stressed. I still feel agitated. What am I not doing right? So uh, what I, before I share what Sariputta's response is, I just want to preemptively say, I'm impressed with the directness of how his friend speaks. Because his friend just cuts, cuts right to the chase. And his friend says, my friend Anuruddha, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the 10,000 cosmos, or the 10,000-fold cosmos. When that occurs to you, Anuruddha, that's related to your conceit. That's your conceit. And when the thought occurs to you, my persistence is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unmuddled. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated and gathered into singleness. Sariputta says, that's related to your restlessness. That's related to your restlessness. And when the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflowings of the, of the poisons of the mind and heart. So he's saying you got, you're conceited, you're restless, and you're anxious. That's the issue. And the question is why? Why is Sariputta saying that? I've thought about this a lot, and I, I don't I pretend to have the, the exact answer. For me, this, this sutta, this teaching is a bit of a riddle. It's a curious riddle. Um, but my sense is, and I'll say this a little bit when I finish the, the story, my sense is that Anuruddha, with all his great efforting, all his serious, sincere work, is wrapped up and tied up in the content of his experience. Tied up in the content, focused on what the story of his experience is. What can I see? What is my body able to do? What's the quality of my mind state? And in all of that, there's a kind of clinging. There's a kind of clinging and holding on. So Sariputta's advice, and this is, you know, kind of extreme understatement. But Sariputta's advice is, it would be well, it would be well, it would be a good idea if abandoning these three qualities of conceit, restlessness, and anxiety, not attending to these three qualities, it would be better if you directed your mind to the deathless element, to the deathless element. And then, as these stories go, Anuruddha thanked him, said, thank you for your teaching, thank you for your advice. And he went off and practiced for a short period of time and then attained full awakening. He became fully liberated, fully, a fully awakened heart. <clears throat> so the reason I share this is that the word deathless, when I first encountered this teaching, and, and the word deathless is just one way of describing sort of the awakened heart, what the awakened heart realizes. 
But when I first heard it, it was it really triggered me a lot because I, I, it sounded uncomfortably religious, like the idea of something not dying. For me, in my Judeo-Christian sort of contextual background, even though I wasn't raised Christian, growing up in this culture, I had the sense of that the deathless had to do with some immortal life after this one in a kind of imaginary heaven above and it just it, it totally made no sense to me what what was being intimated by this teaching so all, all i'll say here is that the idea of the deathless is that within your if we, if we situate exploring what is deathless in our experience one way of doing it is to explore as i already said explore what is death bound which is any experience you have that is of the nature to arise. So I'm not talking about the, like a, a living death or a, a death of life per se. I'm talking about an experience that comes into being, does its thing for a while, and then ceases. So you know, many meditations start usually at the gross level, meaning at the level of the body, where you start to be, bring mindfulness to sensation of the body and whatever sensation we look at, even if it's a dull ache, if we look really close, we'll see like the dull ache is composed of many sensations coming and going. Little bubbles, is, it's like lava lamp experience. Similarly with our mind. If you've watched your mind for more than five minutes or even under five minutes, I'd say, you watch your mind for any period of time and really pay attention to the nature of your the content of your mind, there's this flowing, changing field of thought and ideas. One flowing after the next, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And so in watching the play of experience coming and going, we can start to intimate, we can start to sense, we can start to intuit a field of presence which is not bound by arising and ceasing. And as I've intimated before, this is a little bit like noticing the space of your experience. So if you look at your monitor for a second, and I did this before once or twice, but you look at your monitor, you, know, you see the shape of your computer or the shape of your screen. You see the shape of the boxes with people's faces in them. And what we don't, the mind, what the, what the vision doesn't pick up or what the attention doesn't pick up is the, the space between your eyes and the screen, like the space in here. This is relatively uninteresting compared to the world of form, of shape, color, and movement that we get transfixed by. So in our own experience, one dimension of the meditative journey, particularly, and this is what we do when we're present, I would say. When, you're, when your mind is wandering, you don't, you can't, you don't, have, a, you don't have a foothold in in presence enough to start to notice this. When your mind is awake, so in the cycles of your meditation, when your mind wakes up and you're aware that you're present, that wakefulness is all we need to recognize the deathless element of awareness itself. We just relax as awareness and sense how a thought comes and goes on its own. It's like a wave springing up and falling down. You see a sensation come, you see your sound come and go, 
the whole phenomenal world of experience, all the various experiences that we have immediately in the here and now. I'm not talking about historical experiences or potential future experiences. I'm talking about immediate experiences to the here and now. You can see that there is that which is coming and going. And in the here and now, when we're awake, there is that which is not coming and going within the field of our attention. And that is what, how I think of mindfulness. So resting as the awareness, not coming and going, remembering that awareness is how I think of mindfulness. It's not something that we, the way it's often framed is that we become more mindful. Like that you, the person, have to become a more mindful and conscientious meditator by, by increasing the, the amount of time that you're mindful. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is we relax from the very struggle to do anything. And in the relaxation, we allow ourselves to rest into the natural, wakeful quality of awareness that sees the world of experience come and go. So it's almost like This is a kind of an imperfect extension of the analogy I gave about the movie theater. But if you can imagine yourself like a, I'm trying to like a fly might not be the best one, but you know, you're, people say, "I want to be a fly in the wall in that experience." Well, if you could be a fly in the wall in the movie theater and and fly like a little drone, fly away from your seat in the theater and hang out by the the hole where the projector's light is coming through. So you can really feel that light coming through. You never get deluded that you're watching a movie when the light is that present or that close to you. So in a way, that's kind of what the meditation has an aspect to, or the meditation process has an aspect of this, is learning to rest back into the light of our awareness. And, and then in, really, in, this, in a sense, interrogating what the quality of awareness is like itself. Does it come and go? And I should say, do not, please hear this, do not take my word for it. This is not something to agree with. I'm not asking for you to like nod along and say, oh yeah, that's right. That doesn't do anything. This is something to realize for yourself and to really explore in your practice. What is the nature of, relationship, of awareness in relationship to the content that comes and goes? Okay, I hope that uh, talk is is provoking and stimulating and 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 producing a good reflection for you. Um, I, I received a few emails from students that were live on the talk, and I know that it was a bit dense. Um, and in in hindsight, it was a little bit too dense, in, in fact, for for what I would try to do going forward. But um, there's some really important themes here, and I will undoubtedly unpack them and explore them a bit more in future episodes. But I hope um, some of the themes today are supportive to your development and understanding and exploration of your experience, your subjective experience, both from the conventional and absolute perspectives. So wherever you are, and um, I hope you're doing well, where I am right now in Maine, the weather has become characteristically quite hot for summer, and um, we're all hunkering down and trying to stay cool to the best of our ability. So wherever you are, I hope you're well, I hope you're safe, 
I encourage you to keep practicing. That's the that's sort of my own operative mantra. Practice, practice, practice. Keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.